The following podcast contains mature language and adult discussion. This week on Kayfabe, stories you're not supposed to hear. I was around RVD, who smokes the best pot in the world. <laughs> he lived in California. He's the, the best pot in the world. So, you know, I was hanging out with all those guys, drinking and partying. Right, the love fest continues. You're here, you're here for a reason, so you must like what's going on. If you don't, you are free to leave. I never want to keep anyone hostage. So um, if you come in the door, we're going to spend some time together. Maybe you're already a patron of this show, patreon.com slash Podcast. Join uh, the many, many others who help to produce this show. We'll give them a bunch of shout-outs a little later on. Listen, it was Oscar week. You know, I, I hate to to put timestamps on this, so we won't talk about any specifics, but um, it's a pet peeve of mine. Like, when I'm listening to a pod, I, I discover a podcast, right? And I go back through the uh, through the previous episodes, right? And I'm, I'm, I'm listening to... Um, this thing that I just discovered, right? And 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 I'm and I'm I'm put I'm forcibly put into a time period that is not relevant. I mean, shouldn't podcasts remain timeless? Shouldn't we work to make sure that you know, if oh, for God's sakes, if if it's a certain time of year, we're 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 you know we're not sitting here talking endlessly about the summer, the summer heat, the heat wave. We're in a heat wave. We're in, and and by the way. It's regional. I know if I know people listen to me in as far-reaching areas as uh, oh, I'll bring some of this up later. Every I don't think there's a corner of the globe that we haven't touched at this point. But um, you know, so what am I going to do? I'm going to tell you about tell you about where I am. Who the hell cares? You're in Botswana. I'm going to tell you it's hot over here. The fuck. So I try to be timeless. I try to be, um, you know, I try not to be uh, uh, too uh, regional, I guess would be the word. But you know what? There was the Oscars last night. A couple of episodes ago, we talked about the Super Bowl, all right, because the Super Bowl had just happened. So we did a little bit about that. And then last night uh, was the gay Super Bowl, which is the Oscars. It, a bunch of horse shit that is, you know, and you cannot pin an award on art. There's no such thing as a best is not a best if you hit a baseball i can tell by the number of hits you have and the score on the board and the number of wins that a team has i could put win i could put best on all of that i could tell you who the best hitter is this year we all know who the best team is right in any sport but art is different Art cannot be subject to these things. It's the whims of people's likes and dislikes. So it's a little stupid that that even happens. I've just always felt this way. It's it's a it's a pet peeve of mine. Any any award show relating to film or television or best painting of the year. We should do that. We should have we should have the fine arts awards. Best painting of the year. So. 
it's uh, it's given by Hollywood. It's a party thrown by Hollywood, okay? And it is a huge advertisement for those films. It's a way to get people to go see all these mainstream films that are nominated for these things. It's it's run by Hollywood. It's it, the Oscars are thrown by the organization and the and the the field that is being awarded. So they're, they're giving themselves awards. And there's this like this perception of independence that they put up. You know, like like it's in some way some outside God hath fallen from the sky and laid upon the producers of said film some kind of gold medal and named it the best. It's them. They're giving themselves the awards. I get a SAG ballot every year for the SAG awards. You know what I do with it? I'm proud to tell you what I do with my SAG ballot. I, I either give it to people who know these things, who watch everything that comes out. I make sure anyone I know or anyone I've worked with, I check them first. So that's it. I don't. I, I haven't seen anything. The integrity for me to try to add any integrity to this would be ridiculous. Ridiculous. There is no integrity. There is no best. So anyone I know gets the box checked. Okay. Anyone who's nominated that I've worked with that I know in any capacity, box gets checked. Then it's going to somebody. It's going to anybody. Who knows these things? Or it's going in the garbage. That's the ballot. There's your award show. That's what one person does. And you know what? If this dickhead's doing it, 1% of 1% of Hollywood are the movie stars you watch. Everybody else is a dickhead like me. All the other thousands of people in the Screen Actors Guild, they're dickheads like me. So they're doing the same shit. What about the shoot? You know, for the shoot interview industry, I wonder if we could do an awards show. Be the shooties, I guess, right? And listen, Hollywood throws its own party. I'll get to me and all the other companies that make the, the shoot interviews. We're going to get together and have a night. We will rent a hall and have a night of awards for the shoot interview industry. How about that? And the nominees for best performance by a wrestler on a shoot interview program. James Cornette for Timeline. Applause, applause, applause. Billy Jack Haynes for the Billy Jack Haynes shoot interview. You know how entertaining it is to watch a man slowly go mad on camera. Kevin Nash for You Shoot. Kevin Nash. Jamie Dundee for Jamie Dundee You Shoot. And the shooty goes to, I don't know, who would it be? You tell me. Go vote. Let's let's do a gimmick. Let me know on Twitter. What would we get? We would have swept that. It, it, it'd be hard to go and, 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 and have anybody else win any of these awards. I guess performances on other people. Go vote. You tell me. Best lighting design by a shoot interview company. Who gets that? Who gets that? Best sound mix by a shoot interview production company. Who? Who? Best score by a shoot interview production company. 
Exactly. See where I'm going with this. Best performance by a female in a shoot interview. Maria Canellis, you shoot Maria. Ivory, timeline, 2000. 2001, I think she was. Tammy Sitch, breaking kayfabe, Tammy Sitch. Missy Hyatt, you shoot Missy Hyatt. And the winner is... Those were all ours, by the way. I noticed that. That whole category was KC, baby. Oh, so you'd have to vote. You'd have to vote, and you'd have to admit, at some point, the field has narrowed to one, which was always the case with kayfabe commentaries. The KC Vault... Want to see all of Kayfabe Commentary's content? It's all going to be up there. There's in the hundreds of hours of programming already on the KC Vault. $14.95 a month. One price to watch all of our content. These shows were 20 bucks a piece just a few years ago on DVD. A la carte. Now you've got like, I think there's like 90 full-length programs of kayfabe commentaries on there for one low price a month watch them as many times as you want and you should people tell me they watch some of our timelines three and four times watch their favorite years again and again kc vault go to kcvault.pivotshare.com kcvault.pivotshare.com sign up join the revolution we changed it all Kayfabe Commandos stormed the Bastille and uh, and changed things. CaseyVault.PivotChair.com All right, uh, my path has uh, not yet crossed with today's guest on the podcast, not professionally anyway. There was one time, I'm sure there were other times we were in each other's presence out there, but there was one time I remember in particular, we were out somewhere in Pennsylvania and um, we were doing promos for the uh, Terry Funk roast that we were producing, Ring Roasts, the... uh, the roast of Terry Funk. And it was like nine o'clock in the morning. And we, we were crossing the parking lot from some like red roof Inn to go to a Denny's cause Funk was hungry. And this car comes flying into the parking lot, flies over by us, kind of skids to a stop and out piles, uh, Sabu, um, of uh, the, what's his name? Uh, ref Peewee. And my guest today, uh, at nine o'clock in the morning in stellar condition. And, uh, Sabu runs up to me and goes, uh, Hey man, that show we did where I was talking shit about Kurt Angle. Uh, could you cut that out? I'm like, Sabu, it's been out for six months. He's like, Oh, all right. Well, fuck it. That's it. But my guest today is Bill Alfonso, uh, who you probably remember. Most people come up to you and talk to you about ECW, right, Bill? A lot of people love to bring up ECW. Hey, Sean, it's nice to be on, uh, John Oliver, Cafe Podcast, brother. Every time I get a chance, I tune in. I, I like your show. You cover a lot. You cover a lot. It's pretty cool to be on, too. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. My God. But so, so how about that question? What do most fans come up and talk to you about? 
Um, a lot of the hardcore fans, that, I mean, really smart marks, the really uh, fans that really love the business. When I do these conventions and I do appearances and I, you know, do uh, shows around the country, I get asked about uh, Lex Luger, Bruiser Brody, cage match that was in Fort Lauderdale and I was a referee in the 80s and where Luger uh, panicked and jumped out of the cage. I get a lot of questions about the Beulah-Fonzie match, which is, uh, people say it's legendary, where they're still talking about it, we're almost bled to death. Um, I get uh, asked a lot of questions about ECW and uh, also they, they asked me about WWF. It was WWF when I was there in uh, 93-94. They asked me about the WrestleMania. They asked me about the choke slam with Giant Gonzalez and and the Undertaker had a great match, and I ended up getting choke slammed by the Giant, get knocked out. But um, there's multiple questions. But they love ECW. I spent a lot of time in your neck of the woods, which is uh, in New Jersey, uh, from Philly to you know New York, and I, I love that part of the country. It's been really good to me. I love the wrestling fans there. They're all hardcore. Made a lot of money there. Had a lot of uh, uh, exciting trips and. Um, um, I was just blessed, and uh, you know, and I'm glad to be on your show, Daddy. So, all right, Daddy. So, uh, listen, the the wrestling, the sport has changed, right? I mean, we we saw, yeah, a lot of changes, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and you've kind of spanned you spanned a very interesting period because we went from the kayfabe era. You're talking about the cage match with Luger, uh, that stuff. You know, your work internationally, and then we land in the attitude slash extreme era i always put it in the same basket because i think without extreme championship wrestling you would have not have had an attitude era in wwe and so then we come out of that era and now we're in this thing now which is so different the cat's out of the bag no one's protecting kayfabe protecting anything and what how has the referee game changed i know how the in-ring game has changed and i know what a wrestling match looked like in 1985 1995 and today how has the job of the referee evolved to what these guys have to do now well i think now well let's back it up let's start back in the k-fabe days in the 80s when i started i started actually in 1978 uh for the funks and uh lubbock Amarillo, texas and got my break there then i went of course to florida championship wrestling with eddie graham dusty and uh the briscoes and mike graham and all those guys um back then it was more like a blue collar sport you know the, the wrestling fans were uh art all hard-working people and uh it was uh, uh, there wasn't a lot of entertainment back there i mean you know there's no internet there's no uh football there's, uh, there's hardly anything but wrestling was every week and uh it was a uh, hardcore blue collar uh blue collar and uh it evolved it kept evolving now vince mcmahon took the word wrestling out of you know, his introduction is no longer uh, Worldwide Wrestling Federation. It's, you know, Worldwide Entertainment, you know? Yeah. Uh, Vince would rather have the doctor, his wife, and the two kids at ringside than six guys, you know, cheering. So it's changed. The referee's position, um, 
you know, you got to dress the part. You got to be smart. You're working with production companies. You're on cable. You're on pay-per-views. Uh, time and seconds matter. Um, um, you know, uh, when I was uh, back in the day working for Andy Graham in the 80s, I could wear a pair of jeans, cowboy boots, and, you know, a nice T-shirt. It looked good. But now uh, Vince likes you to dress really nice, uh, you know, designer clothes, or the jacket, or wears a Rolex, because you got to look like somebody, you know what I mean? But the pace of the matches now is so, I mean, these guys are 100 miles an hour right out of the gate. 64 false finishes in the first five minutes. I mean, uh, the referee has to keep pace with that. Yeah, you definitely got to be in shape. You definitely got to be in shape, yeah. Um, I mean, uh, the, the high spots, they they're doing now were finishes back in the day, you know, like a big neck breaker or something off the top rope or, uh, you know, uh, those were finishes. Now they're using them for false finishes. They're using them for moves. It's crazy. Yeah, you better be in shape. You better look good. You better be clean cut and, and uh, know your game. I like the, uh, how I made it so long in the businesses. I was a, a, a fan, first of all, when I was growing up in, in Florida. I mean, we had wrestling every Tuesday. It was was great. That was my training rounds, watching it. And uh, you really got to be in your A game, man. Um, I, I would know the match. Like, like there some of the referees come in back in the day and say, oh, just give me the finish. Just give me, you know, what you can use for the finish, one, two, three. I like to know the beginning, the middle, and the end. I, I want to know the whole match. Yeah. D- did, um... Where, where where were referees treated the best? I mean, you worked all over the place. Where were you guys treated the best? Well, I was lucky. I'm only speaking for myself. Um, I was treated good because I knew the wrestling business and and uh, I knew wrestling. Um, and I did a fantastic job. So I was well-liked, so I was always treated good. I was always getting plucked to go to Japan to do Fujinami Ric Flair. I was always getting plucked to go to Germany or England or Scotland or France or Austria to do Hogan and Yokozuna. They, they just liked me because I was small and I was uh, athletic and I, and I loved the business. So I was really good at what I did. I really took my job serious. What, what about the paydays? Um, really good in WWF. Vince treated me very well. I made the most money there. Um, so that's always a good thing to, you know, um, and, and I, I was treated well, actually everywhere. I haven't had a bad run. WCW treated me really good. That was Ted Turner money. It was big stars, you know, it was on uh, national TV. I was on cable. So, you know, uh, it was really cool. It was really cool. So I was treated my whole career, uh, very good. Was the money, you know, when we hear back in the day, like, if you worked a Hogan card, you know, I'm talking about as a worker, like you worked a Hogan card, even if you were like in the middle of the card, the money was always much bigger than if you were on like a B, so, B show or a C show, obviously because the house was full, right? Because Hogan was there. Was the ref's money kind of cut the same way? Did it slide according to what the house was? I think, yeah, yes, of course it did. But I think Vince has a formula. He has you basically, you know, on uh 
a six-figure, I was making six figures, which was fantastic. I never made that kind of money. Well, WCW, I made the six figures too, but I think they get to the formula. It's going to average out to the same at the end of the year, give or take a few grand, you know. So, but but um, when I saw my name on the booking sheet and it was at Madison Square Gardens, I know I was going to get a big payday. When I saw my name on the booking sheet and I was at the L.A. Forum or Nassau Coliseum, or Anaheim in California, or, you know, uh, Staples Center. I knew I was going to make, you know, uh, a bigger chunk of money instead of being at uh, the Scope in Roanoke, Virginia, you know? Right. Um, what about overseas? Is the referee's job any different overseas, or can you work the same way you work here? No, I, I work the same way. You, you work the same way because we're a traveling show. So we don't cater to, well, I've never been to Dubai and, and, uh, and the Middle East out there where they're going now, you know. Uh, but all in Europe, you know, it's the same. Like uh, in England, at the, you know, the big tennis place uh, um, slips my mind. But the name of the building, uh, you know, where they play tennis in the, uh, London, uh uh, in uh, not Wembley, uh, you're talking about um... yeah, 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 Wembley. They're, they're anywhere, and uh, it's pretty much the same because we're a traveling show. You know, we're not going to change up our, our our stuff. Gotcha. I just thought maybe like because because yeah. the fans. I know like the fans in Japan. They 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 kind of roll to a different pace. You know, they start out real real timid and real calm, and then it builds throughout. Like I didn't know if that required something different of the referee. I never changed my pace. I was always the same guy, but you're right about the Japanese audience. They were great. I mean, uh, the flair for tsunami. I've been to Japan uh, uh, quite a few times, and I really enjoyed Tokyo. It's one of my favorite cities in the world. Um, but uh, Japan, when my first trip over there, I think it was uh, early 90s, I was 91, and uh, 65,000 people, and they don't cheer like, you know, like we do here, right. you clap more. It's more of a, a, a timid audience. So it's like you said, it's pretty, they're pretty laid back. But during that flare for tsunami match, when I was, you know, it was the main event, 65,000 people, and I took a bump, and they, I took a bump outside, and they continued the match without me, and Fujinami threw flare over the top rope, and then they brought him back in, and then the other Japanese referee came down, and finished the match while I was uh, recuperating on the floor. And Fujinami pin flare, the referee counted one, two, three. And I came up and I was panning my, no, 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 Jumbo was that broke. Now, i never seen a Japanese audience like this. They wanted to string me up. Yeah. And they were really mad at me because I'm reversing the decision that, you know, the Japanese Fujinami just beat Flair for the world title. It was a big thing. They take their business. They take their wrestling really serious. And, uh, boys, uh, that got them excited. So they, they got more Americanized there for a minute. They wanted to kill me. They wanted to string me up. How about um, you worked with Andre a bit, right? Yes, I like Andre. He was very, was, you know, one of the seventh wonders of the world. He stepped on my pool in Madison Square, and I was backing him off the turnbuckle for beating up a guy. And by accident, he stepped on my foot. You know, kind of hard. He was, you know, four hundred some pounds, and still to this day, I think he might have fractured, had a little crack in it, or something happened. Because every once in a while, 
that same right foot swells up a little bit, like I got the gout or something. But it's not the gout. I went to the, you know, to the doctor, and they checked it all out. They said, no, it must have been an old injury or something. But Andre the Giant stepped on me, stepped on my right foot, and it still bothers me today. That was 20-something years ago. What a great story. I mean, if I went to the doctor because of my foot, I'd have to be, you know, like a fucking hammer fell on it or I dropped some shit. You get to go to the doctor and say, yeah, hey, doc, Andre the Giant stepped on this in, you know, 1990. That's pretty badass. Oh, I was an instant celebrity when I walked in the doctor's office and after, you know, 20 minutes, he said, well, what happened to your foot? And I told him, that, you know, Andre the Giant, just like you said, what? Andre the Giant, and I'll pull up a picture on my phone or something. Uh they all like, you know, everybody likes the giant, everybody likes Hogan, everybody likes the super, you know what I mean, they talk about it, they don't want to admit they're big wrestling fans, but everybody knows those big names, you know? Well, even but, the doctors, oh, because yeah. cause thanks to Vince McMahon, the doctors get to go and sit in the front row with their children now, right? Exactly. Uh, what was the first, exactly. when was the first time you were asked to get color by a promoter? Hmm. I guess it was in the 80s, um... Jody Hamilton, who was a mask assassin back then, he was Nick Patrick's dad. You remember Nick Patrick? He was yeah, the referee, sure. W. Yeah, was a really good friend of mine. But so, um, uh, the mask assassin, they were a tag team, and they were fighting Dusty or whoever it was, Dusty and my grandma, whatever. And uh, the assassin headbutted me, and I got a, you know, I busted open my head. And so it was in the early 80s. And I was scared, you know, I was a young kid, I was in my early 20s, and, you know, I've been watching these guys all my life, you know, since I was 12, 13 years old, not exactly, you know, the assassin, but, you know, I was watching pro wrestling with Sailor Thomas and Michael Negro and Bobo Brazil and Patrick Monroe and Charlie Lay and all these guys. But then to get in there, where I watched it at Fort Homer S3 Army in Tampa was pretty freaking cool um and then when you know i was getting busted open it was well, like actually my first time and ooh, scared and uh but i did well i was a nat uh, and why i was so well liked i guess in the wrestling business and the wrestlers like i was like a wrestler's referee if that makes any sense um they liked me because i love the business i was good at what i do so it was i was just a natural in the ring i guess from watching it so much um sean when i was a kid yeah and i was just good at it i don't you know i've only done this this is the only job i've ever had in my whole life i've done this since 1978 i was a young kid and i'm still doing uh wrestling appearances and and i, I work for a company in ohio i go up once or twice in fact i'm going up there friday uh absolute intense wrestling aiw and i manage there, Rob Van Dam, his name is Matthew Justice. He's just like Van Dam. There's nobody like Van Dam, but he's very similar to Van Dam. Does all these accurate, you know, all these big stuff, and he's really good. So, and he's their top guy. He's their RBD of ECW, of AIW. So, I got a good spot up there. So, I did these appearances all over. So, I'm really blessed. I've been doing this full time since 78. Took me a couple of years to get in. But, very lucky, and I'm still doing it. I'm doing a, uh, let's see, my schedule this month is this Friday the 7th. <clears throat> I go to Cleveland, Ohio, and do a show. I come back. Um, the 21st, I am in Cocoa Beach, Florida. There's a big ECW reunion against um, 
and this other company this like their big reunion show and of course I'm on it I'm, you know I'm doing that show and then the 22nd I go back up to Ohio to Akron and do a big show then I'm in Circleville Ohio it's by Columbus for a huge convention I've been doing conventions all summer uh, you know the, the last year I've done about 10 conventions uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana, several thousand people. I just did a big one in Winston-Salem. Oh, I just did one. I think it was called Legends of the Ring, right in the North, right where you're from. Yeah, that's, I think, James's convention. Is that James's, uh, James and Terrence? I'm not sure who it was. Yeah, who the hell knows? A that? lot of people, a lot of people. And I went up, up there and had a fantastic time. And I sold and gave away more pictures. As much as this guy next to me, who was, you know, there were some big stars up there, you know what I mean? So, what, I, now, are you, well, this weekend, you're, really you're working well this... Well received by the fans, because I'm a I'm fan friendly. I don't sit behind it. I don't, when I'm at these conventions, you know how all the wrestlers sit behind the table and people come up and they sign an autograph and whatever. I'm in front of the table, you know, interacting with the fans. And they're That's asking good. Me and I'm talking to them, so it, they, they really... Um, like that, and I really enjoy that. It's actually that's good, uh, John. It's actually very flattering for me to for for people to come up to me. And say, oh, Fonzie, I used to watch you in Florida. Oh, Fonzie, I saw you in WWF. Oh, Fonzie, this. Oh, Fonzie. that's really flattering, and they're really nice. The people to you know know uh, a big a lot about my past and my career. Well, listen, without the fans, we're nothing, right? So let me ask you this: This weekend, you go, you're going up to Ohio. You're going to blade this weekend, or what? You're going to you're going to get a little color. No, last no. time I was up there, which was um, December 27th, we were uh, Matthew Justice, who I managed, was wrestling in the sky. Uh, Wes, I forget his name, is a talented, a talented group of uh, guys up there, and so Matthew. Uh, said the guy he was wrestling, bam, 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 they brought it in the table, Matthew put him on the table, and Matthew Justice was going to the top rope to dive off and put him to the table. And crazy me, not thinking very well, I'm trying to make it exciting, I'm trying to, you know, do my job. I put a chair on top of the guy, he's on the table, he's in the middle of the ring on the table, laid out, so Matthew's climbing up the top rope. So I climb up before Matthew on the opposite turnbuckle and dive off and put the guy through a table, and I broke my ribs. Crazy. Oh. Why did I do that? I don't know, but I did it. Because so, <laughs> you got ECW uh, in your blood, bro. That's why. Yes, I do. Listen, Bill, uh, this is ECW's 25th anniversary, right? Uh, Extreme Championship Wrestling's 25th yeah, anniversary. Yeah, I started in 95. May of 95, I went to ECW. So if you had to give an anniversary card to one person in that company uh, for the uh, for those 25 years, who would it be? I would give two. I would give one to Todd Gordon, who's still one of my dear friends today, and I would give one to Paul Heyman. What percentage? You know, the the Todd and Paul dynamic. I I know Todd well too, and I've I've talked to him about this, and I, I like to talk to the workers, though, too, to find out, what was that percentage that we would credit them for the success? Like, people talk about Hogan and Vince. Like, was it 50-50? Would you credit Hogan 75 and Vince 25, vice versa? Talk about the Todd and Paul, and what percentages would you put on those two for the success of ECW at the time? Well, if there wasn't no Todd Gordon, there wouldn't be no ECW. He had a vision 
Um, he's a businessman. He's a, a, a precious stone and precious metal broker. Uh, so he kind of comes from a little money. And uh, he loved the sport. So he wanted to get involved somehow. He's a businessman. He's not a, you know, he knows a, a lot about wrestling. But um, I give him a lot for starting the company. Then I give him a lot for bringing in Paul Heyman. Did I give Paul Heyman a lot because Paul Heyman was brilliant. He saw something that was, you know, going into uh, untested waters and trying different things and, you know, the sex and violence and hardcore uh, and, and all that kind of stuff. And there was a market for who knew? You know, the more hardcore we got, the more market, you know, was available to us. So wherever we went, you know, so I think pro wrestling changed. There were, I think ECW changed a lot of Vince didn't like us at the beginning. Vince's son, Shane, loved ECW, from what I hear. And I, I just saw Shane that God bless Rocky Johnson who just passed away. I was at his funeral and I saw Rocky. He lived in Tampa. We have this Legends Lunch every three months in Tampa and all the Legends wrestlers are, and Rocky was coming to all these lunches and I just saw him, and you know, he passed away. God bless him. And I just saw Shane McMahon. He treated me uh, very well. And Vince was there too. So it was Triple H with a lot of WWF guys. Hogan was there. Flair. Everybody was there. It was, you know, sad thing. The Rock was giving a eulogy, and it was, you know, Rocky was seventy-five, and you know, a legend in his own way. Uh, so I give a lot of credit to uh, uh, Paul Heyman for changing the business of being smart. You know. He was a pop culture. He was young. His mind was young. You know what I mean? Yeah. And he was giving what the people he wanted. So we were lucky to have for him. That's why I would give two cards. Uh, one to uh, Todd Gordon, who's one of my best friends. Today, I just talked to him last night. He called me and told me, you know, we put me and you together. He put me and uh, Sean Oliver's uh, KFA podcast together. Uh, so that was very cool to Todd. And I, uh, we text back and forth all the time. But now, what was the best piece of uh, of uh, advice uh, Paulie ever gave you? Uh, well, you always hear how he was kind of like the mad genius, right? You know, and uh, do you ever say anything that stuck with you that you took through the years, or either just I don't know if it was advice or just uh, oh yeah 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 yeah. So I made a transition from you know I was a referee my whole career from nineteen seventy eight. I was one of the better referees in the country. Uh, that's what they say, not me. But, you know, I'm going to agree with them because I, I like being a good referee. So I want a better referee. So I worked for Florida Championship Wrestling. I worked for WCW, WWF, uh, Japan, all over the world. I've been refereeing, which is great for me. Then I go to ECW. So, uh, uh, and I went in there to troubleshooting conservative WWF-type referee, sports entertainment, you know, family entertainment, and that was anti-ECW, wanted to stop the violence and the blood and guts and all that. So I was hated, you know, these people wanted to see the blood and guts, and I was there to stop it. Uh, Wear my bow tie and beautiful blue shirt and all that. So I had natural heat. And then Paul Heyman's idea was to for me to go up there for four weeks and do my stop the violence in ECW and then 
911's going to choke slam me, and then I go back to Florida and, and I'm home. That was only, you know, like a, a one month, four week contract with mm-hmm. Paul Heyman. But he, nobody knew that my character was going to take off, especially me. And Paul Heyman knew it somehow. But so I made a transition to manage Taz. So, but I had been around, John, I had been around the business for years. But I didn't do a lot of interviews. I'm, you know, occasionally I'll do an interview about, you know, a, a Reverita match or something, but not all the time. So now they put me in a position where I get to talk all the time. I get to, you know, do interviews every freaking week. Yeah, you know, we sure did. So I wasn't, you know, uh, equipped for that. I should have been because I've been around it, my, but it didn't sink in so quick. So, um, Okay, Fonzie, do any of you talk about uh, next uh, Saturday night at the ECW Arena? You're going to defy the people to come. If, if, if they come, you're going to feel the wrath of Bill Alfonso. And I didn't know. I was one take, two takes, three takes, four takes. And Paulie came up to me and he was here's the advice. Here's my, you asked the question, what good advice? Yeah. He said, Fonzie, treat your interviews like a shoot. Just say what you're going to do for real. You know, say, hey, you're coming to Philly. You defy the wrestling fans that come to the arena. And if they do, you're going to feel the wrath of the world. So just say what you're going to do. And then after that, I start getting interviews. Bam, bam, bam. Then they call me One Take Fonzie. <laughs> Paul Heyman told me to treat it like a shoot. And it would come out. And it did. And I was great at interviews. And you know, I've done hundreds of interviews, and then I went with Taz and Van Dam. I mean, Van Dam and Sabu, and we continued on, and it was good. I guess I had a legendary run there. I was supposed to be there for four weeks, and I ended up staying five years. What is and was Taz? Boy, he paid me fantastic money. He paid me as much money as Vince McMahon did at WrestleMania Nine. Wow! For, for the um, um, barely legal the first pay per view. He yeah. says, Fonzie, we did well. Under, you know, we had a good buy rate. He said, I don't know what to pay you. You know, you were the main event with Sabu and Van Dam and, and uh, the guys. And Taz, uh, you know, you were the, uh, I don't know what to pay you. I said, well, why don't you pay me the same thing Vince paid me for WrestleMania? He said, okay, how much? And I told him that's what he paid me, which was a very nice, handsome payday. Wow. Was Taz as difficult as people say? Not with me. Taz was. Like, Taz didn't get over until they put me and him together. Now, I'm not saying I got Taz over. He got himself over. But, yeah, it was like two or three different characters. It was Tasmania. He was Monkey Boy. Whatever. He had a bunch of different characters. But when they put the Taz gimmick on him, and they told him, like Paul Heyman told me, just to shoot on the interviews, and Taz was a spinoff of his real character. You know what I mean? He's kind of like that in real life. But him and I got along beautiful. I mean, we didn't hang out, smoke pot, go to the bar, and have a cocktail, go out and eat after the matches. He went up to his room and had milk and cookies, and I went to the bar and had, you know, uh, stolies and cranberries. You did all that other stuff. He went upstairs. Right. I did all the good shit. Uh, (laughs) So while we're on that, why don't we talk about... He was very very pleasant to work with. We both got over big time. He handled it well. He believed. He was very believable. He was a great guy with me. Uh, he was well-liked. He did a lot for the company, you know what I mean, uh, uh, behind the scenes. So 
there i mean ecw of course has a reputation not just for the wild stuff in the ring but everything outside that you know has been on my company kayfabe commentaries programming for years the stories about the travelodge everything so would was it possible to work ecw in the heyday 95 96 97 and not get caught up in that drug scene bill yeah absolutely it was uh very possible because a lot of guys did there's only uh have, let me tell you this, John uh, Oliver from KPA Podcast, one of the best podcasts going today. I listen to you every chance I get. Love this but, guy. You know, and from 95 to, well, there was no time in the history of ECW where one of our guys OD'd and they found him dead in the hotel room. Not one time. Now, when they left, like Brian Pillman and several other guys, when they were left ECW, you know, that's when guys died, but nobody died on our watch. Nobody died during the whole course of ECW. Not Spicoli? Was Spicoli? Sp- what, Spicoli left? I don't remember. What yeah, was... he wasn't with us at the time. Okay. He, he had left the company, yeah. Not one guy died. He was doing something else. Uh, yeah, he sure did. Um, it's a big loss, too. Uh, but, yeah, it, it was very possible not to, because Chris Jetty and all those young guys, they weren't rocking and rolling like you know, the old timers like me, I was partying, I was drinking pretty good, smoking a little pot, because, listen, I was around RVD, who smokes the best pot in the world. <laughs> he lived in California, he the, the best pot in the world. So, you know, I was hanging out with all those guys, drinking and partying, but, you know, but you didn't have to. Oh, I enjoyed it, I had a good time doing that, but, you know, I'm clean and sober now, I, I don't drink at all. Uh, um, so... Uh, yeah, a lot of guys, a lot of young guys, but it, it was brute, you know. Yeah, we were very lucky. If you wanted a party, you could. How did anyone stay married in ECW? Did it? Did anyone stay married in ECW? Well, you can say that about any wrestling company, WCW, uh, WWE, or Florida Championship Wrestling. It's hard because, you know, when, when you're working full-time, not so much ECW because we were only working Friday and Saturday every, you know, two times a week. There's other companies you're working seven days a week. You're home three, ten days on home three. You're gone seven to ten days and home three days. Year-round, there was no time off. Uh, so that's where the marriages and stuff get difficult. Yeah. what? How would you describe the travel lodge to anyone who may not know what we're talking about? in Philadelphia early in ECW um, we got a rate there it was uh, close to the arena close to the airport and a lot of fans would end up there after the matches and a lot of you know anybody who flew in which a lot of us did like me and Vandal a lot of guys had to fly in because we were living in California Florida Michigan Ohio all over so we were flying so we'd have stay at a hotel, the guys that lived in that area would go home, but, so, it became, you know, I mean, we ran Philly all the time, or we were based out of Philly, so, you know, if we ran, like, Newark, or, you know, in those areas, or, you know, Queens, or anywhere uh, in the, the uh, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York area, we'd always drive back to, there's only two hours from Philly, you can get anywhere in two hours, including New York City. Uh, so we always 
Right. And and when he realized it's Todd Gordon, then it really becomes horrifying. That is where Todd became God, you know. Yeah, Todd is famous. <laughs> Listen, let's go to Twitter. We, we have uh, America um, lining up to ask you questions here on Twitter. Uh, let's go to... I, I, I didn't know we were live. I thought we were recording this. Well, we're recording, but I uh, I put out there that uh, fans could have, uh, have uh, access to you. So here's some of what's getting sent in. Anthony Mines says... Are you and Missy Hyatt still friends after appearing on the Judge television show? Yeah, Judge Mathis we run. Um, yeah, we're still good friends. She's out of the business completely. She's turned her life. Uh, she's changed. And, you know, you outgrow the business sometimes. It's what she did. She's still beautiful. I talk to her occasionally. She lives in Tallahassee, Florida. Yes, of course, we're still friends. How we ended up on Judge Mathis is... Uh, uh, both of us had Porsches. She had, a, uh, she had just bought a brand new Porsche, beautiful. And I've had my, I had mine for a year or two. And she came to my house. She was uh, upset because she, she broke up with a boyfriend. And she pulled up and said, Fonzie, let's go to have a cocktail, have some lunch or something. I'm depressed. Uh, and she said, will you drive? I said, okay, honey. So I was driving. Her and I were driving in Tampa. It was during rush hour. And I wrecked her. You know, I I, I uh, was in a car accident in a Porsche, brand new Porsche, and like a thousand miles on it or something crazy. And she was devastated. But no problem. We got it. Full coverage insurance. We're both making money. We, you know, we're, we're going to get a fix or whatever. So uh, two days later, she calls me and says, hey, my agent, this is Missy talking. She says, my agent said there is a, a spot open. Somebody canceled. There's a spot open, but we got to go tomorrow. They tape on Thursdays in Chicago. They'll fly us up. They give us a uh, an appearance fee. They give us per diem. They put us in a five star hotel, and they'll pay for the damages in a Porsche. I said, really? I said, okay, let's do that. Plus, it's press. We all like press, and, and it was uh, really good. And uh, the judge loved us. The judge loved, because he was a big. Titty, beautiful blonde, and the judge loved her. <laughs> I was on my own game. It was like doing promos, you know what I mean? So we had a good time. They paid, you know, pretty cool. Yeah, we're still good friends. Okay, Justin, uh, Justin Amarine 574 says to ask you about the match with Beulah and the blood loss. I saw a picture of that. Uh, you just sent me that, didn't you? Yes, you can pull, it, you can pull that up on uh, YouTube. Just put it in Beulah versus Fonzie. And you can watch the whole match in seven minutes. What happened was, I uh, still talked about today, Paul Heyman. Well, Vince put the, put this match out on several of his WWE sports entertainment DVDs where you can buy, like, the bloodiest uh, blood sports. Is it? Yeah. So you can watch this. I don't want you to watch it. You, you'll, you'll like it. So that's another one of the... Um, Questions I get all the time. Oh, Fonzie, tell me to talk to me about the Beulah Fonzie match, and so I do. So what happened was like fifteen or twenty seconds. The match is only seven minutes, a little over seven minutes, seven and a half minutes, where she hit me with a tin sheet and hit me right over the eye and busted my eye, busted right above my eyebrow open, and and for somehow it, it hit an artery. It hit her nerve, and I almost bled to death. It was pretty cool. And if it wasn't for that uh, whack, when she hit me with that cooking sheet, it would have been an ordinary match. Nobody would be talking about it today. But it was really cool. 
almost bled to death. I had to get rushed to the hospital. Well, they took me backstage and tried to stop the bleeding. They couldn't. So they put a cold pack, a cold steel, and taped me up and rushed me to the hospital because I had to consider it head trauma. So I went into the hospital, they, the head trauma, and, and uh, uh, I was, uh, they had me in the fucking emergency thing, surgery, and the clothes. It was crazy. So that was a hard way? Yes. Wow. Uh, Salvatore Martone asks, how crazy is Tampa? It's almost literally a city that sole purpose is to be a retirement community for delinquent wrestlers from the 80s. Also, how many old Tampa rats do you run into when you're just like, yikes? Well, Tampa is and always has been uh, a hotbed for professional wrestling to work here, to live here, and because the weather's good, the economy's good, the cost of living isn't like you guys up north. You guys pay big money. You know, down here for three or $400,000, you get a beautiful home. You can't even get a freaking uh, uh, 500-square-foot uh, house or apartment in New York for that. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's crazy. But it's we got year-round good weather. Uh, we got pro sports. We got basketball in Orlando. We got baseball, hockey. We're, you know, uh, uh, football. We're hosting the Super Bowl next year. We got WrestleMania here. Uh, and I do run into uh, a lot of wrestling fans because we have that Legends Lunch here I was talking about earlier. Um, every three months, it's on a Friday, every three months at O'Brien, at O'Malley's, it's a, a big uh, sports bar where they host uh, our, our luncheon at. There's usually 20 or 5, 35 wrestlers there from anywhere from Jerry Briscoe to, uh, you know, the Million Dollar Man, all, you know, Haku and Brian Blair and, all, you know, Rocky Johnson. Uh, this, uh, myself, there's tons of wrestlers come to the deal. And some, you know, some wrestling fans show up too. So I do run across some of my beautiful old friends, but I'm single, so it's pleasant for me to run across one of my fat blonde girlfriends. <laughs> Bill, where can we see you? Where can we reach out to you on social media? Are you on Twitter? Where can we hit you up? I'm on Twitter. I'm on at Alfonso Bill. I'm on Facebook. Uh, uh, Bill Fonzie Alfonso. Uh, I got several thousand people who follow me, which is fantastic. I'm very flattered. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm on uh, Instagram or whatever the fuck I'm, I'm on like three things so and I'm, I'm, I'm touring all the time and not every freaking weekend but I work two or three times a month somewhere in the United States which is very cool so if you guys ever see my name on one of the conventions or a wrestling show or an appearance please come up to me and tell me that you listened to the Sean Oliver KFA podcast and I'll sign and give you a free picture. Be my pleasure. Just tell me, uh, Sean Oliver, Kate Bay Podcast. You heard me there, and, and I'll be more than happy to sign a beautiful uh, me, Van Damme, and Sabu. People love this picture. Be more than be great to give you guys one. And listen, he's clean and sober now, so you can't give him any gimmicks, but you can bring him one of those big-ass rats he used to like back in the day. You'll take one of them, won't you, Daddy? Oh, listen, I don't know why, but 
I attract big blonde, big boned blonde women. They love me for some reason. Yeah, Fonzie. There's more to come with Fonzie, by the way. There's more where that came from. Getting Fonzie back. We didn't even, we didn't even scratch the surface with Fonzie. Trust me. Trust me. That was the that was the warm up. That was the first date. Huh. You wait for what's to come. Um, we got to get to Twitter. I always promise this. Uh, first, Paul Innocencio Senior uh, wanted to point out he uh, he tweeted and uh, he said, "Hey Sean, I just ordered my copy of your new book, Transfer. Super stoked! All the reviews I've read are excellent. What's up with a shout out on the next podcast? Well, I'm a man of my word. Listen, anyone that reads my fiction." going to cling to you guys like um you know at a, at, at in in a in desperate fashion you know that's a tough that's a tough nut to crack um but i do want to go through your questions they are many salvatore martone he always seems to get on here did tony say blind kids or black kids when he was sitting in a bathtub like some gaucho with a cigar in his mouth. Do something. Be a nurse. Work with blankets, lepers. Anything be sitting around here waiting for me to... Yeah, that's. I think he's referencing, obviously, Scarface, Tony Montana. He has to say blind kids. I always thought it was blind kids. Because that, that progression would only make sense if it was the infirmed. Are we talking about blacks that way now in society? I don't know. May, are we? Lepers? It's, it's, do, be a nurse? Lepers? Black kids. That doesn't make sense, right? There's a there's a there's a real disconnect there. So uh, lepers, blind kids. I'm gonna go with blind kids. I, I I don't know, but I'm gonna say blind kids is my guess. Uh, Matthew Boyle. If you had to put a label on it, what year do you think you stopped caring about pro wrestling as a fan? You definitely have some fun memories of the '80s stuff, but your lack of interest with the more modern stuff is evident. Yeah, I think. I uh, just want to know where, when you draw the line. Um, well, yeah, obviously that's, that's listen, the first stuff that we watched when we were kids, that's got a special place in your heart, and that never goes away, right? Because there was a mystique. Part of it was you, right? Because you're a child, so you're looking at it through a child's eyes. But the product was different, too. There's no denying this. The product was absolutely, positively different at that time. So... I start to change, I start to grow up, and then the product starts to change. Now, ECW shakes it up a little bit, right? We all kind of come back into the fold for that, paying attention to ECW, and we're like, whoa. Um, and so, but then the Attitude Era cashes out on that, and we start watching again. There's the Monday Night Wars, right? We're all inside now, right? We're all kayfabe's dead. We're talking about ratings and quarter hours and whatnot, like we work at the goddamn company. But it intrigued us, and it kept us watching every week, so it succeeded. Um, after that, I didn't have much use for it. I tried. Um, it really seemed to be uh, the same the same four guys on top in in rotations i'm supposed to be you know they're, they're wrestling every week and then there's a pay-per-view well, why see the pay-per-view I, I just watched them wrestle seven times in the last month i don't know the old structure worked it kept things special uh i'm going to be a dinosaur and say that uh i guess in the 2000s the 2000s it, it stopped being interesting after wcw was gone and wwe could really do whatever the hell it wanted 
uh, on TV without much threat of competition um, that really started to get stale. And we were watching the same stuff week after week. There was no unpredictability. Everyone say what you will about Vince Russo and, and, and that time period, not only Vince Russo, but, you know, on the whatever company he was working for they were doing it on the other channel too right they were keeping things unpredictable reasons to tune back in and uh they have not had that in a very very long time so yeah i'm gonna say like mid-2000s probably matthew it stopped getting i'm not saying i didn't watch but for me it stopped getting as interesting there um bill uh gil boldberg (laughs) Uh, i think i've done that once before to you gil um it says Mount Rushmore of Denzel Washington movies. You know what? Not a big Denzel fan. He falls into this category of, you know, same guy in every picture. I just I'm from the school that you should be a chameleon. You know, guys like Sean Penn, who uh, for the most part are infinitely different in every film, and they seem to change themselves at a level that uh, not many others do. But the Kevin Costners, the Denzel Washingtons, the... Uh, I mean, I'm waiting to see something really different. I'm, you know, they've accepted this movie star designation, and they come out and they read their lines as the same damn character every time. So, not... And I, I was in... My first movie I ever did was Philadelphia, and uh, Denzel was there. I was in scenes with him, and, uh, uh, you know, he was... I mean, listen, I guess in Hollywood, right, they pump you up, you have an ego. Malcolm X had just come out, so he was kind of top of the food chain. But he wasn't I mean, He wasn't particularly pleasant to be around, to be honest with you. So I'm not a big Denzel fan. If I had to pick a, a Denzel movie, I like, I guess Glory was a great film. Um, Brady, have you heard from Buff Bagwell since he last attempted to shoot Timeline uh, WCW 1997? Maybe he could be a guest on your show one day. Yeah, of course he could come on. I'd, I'd love to talk to him about uh, about anything he wants to talk about. I have a feeling what you guys want me to talk about. Thomas Pine, did you watch Miami Vice back in the day? If so, thoughts? Do you think it helped spark interest in the whole underground scene in Miami? Cocaine Cowboys, etc. Thomas, um, Miami Vice was great because it was so... Uh, it was such a perfect microcosm for the 80s. It was over the top. It was flash. It was all style and no substance. So if you could kind of get off on that and enjoy that whole thing, it was pop music bubblegum on TV. And, um, you know, the famous pitch that was made for Miami Vice, it's so perfectly encapsulated what that show was. And it was... uh, it, the pitch to the NBC executives was two words, MTV cops. That's all they had to say. Painted the picture perfectly. And it was. Um, I look back at it with a little bit of nostalgia. I liked uh, stylistically. I thought it was so cool at the time. Um, I was, a, you know, a Michael Mann fan. And it was it was great for what it was. It's not great television. But how much of what becomes popular is? Things are a little different now with Netflix and stuff. I think we've been educated a little bit on TV and art. And all the TV shows became much more filmic. We have HBO to thank for that. Stuff like The Sopranos. But back then, all flash, no substance. I'm fine with that. 
Obviously. Obviously, I'm fine with that. I sit here and run a goddamn wrestling interview company. Oh. I have nothing left for you. Speaking of speaking of all flash, no substance, I have nothing left for you. What have we covered? We talked about the Oscars. I answered a few damn questions. We had Bill Alfonso on. What more do you want? Bill's coming back, I promise. This show's been a production of Sean Oliver Media. Music by the great Kevin McLeod. And you, my patrons, Patreon slash Kayfabe Podcast. Keep it coming. Help produce this show. Guys, stay out of trouble this week, will you?